Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. I'm Kathy with a K. And I'm Kathy with a C. And this is season two of Killer Destinations. Today's destination is Youngstown, Ohio. The city was named for New York native John Young, who established the community's first sawmill and grist mill. He surveyed the area in 1796 and settled there soon afterward. The city's establishment was officially recorded on August 19, 1902. Located midway between Chicago and New York City, Youngstown was an early industrial city of the late 19th and early 20th centuries and was once best known as a center of steel production. However, due to declining industry, aging factories, and falling population, it is now considered to be part of the American Rust Belt. There has been a decline in the city's population of more than 60% since 1959. Currently, the city's largest employer is Youngstown State University, a public university that serves about 15,000 students. Youngstown has been forced to adapt after the steel industry fell into decline in the 1970s, and city and community leaders are focused on revitalization efforts. Downtown Youngstown has always been the traditional center of the city, and after decades of precipitous decline, the downtown area is showing signs of renewal. Civic leaders have expressed hope that the district will emerge as a significant arts and entertainment center within the region's metropolitan area. Despite the city's renewal, ghosts of the past remain. One of those specters is a young woman who was brutally murdered in 1985 and whose case still lingers in the judicial system. In the fall of 1985, Gina Tenney was a sophomore at Youngstown State University. She lived alone in a second-floor apartment in a converted house on Ohio Avenue. In the early morning hours of Christmas 1985, around 1 a.m., Gina was getting ready for bed when, as she later told a friend, she heard someone at her door with keys like they were trying to get in. Gina called her ex-boyfriend, Mark Passarello, who came and stayed with her until about 3 a.m. on Christmas morning. When Mark left, she placed a chair against her door. Shortly after that, Gina again heard someone at her door. The person actually knocked over the chair she had placed against the door, and she heard them enter her apartment. She immediately called 911 and reported that someone had broken into her apartment. The responding police officers found footprints in the snow leading from her apartment to another building almost a mile away. Now, Kath, I did not read anything specific on this, but it seems to me he must have heard her making the phone call because he left. I assume that as well. Because what we do know is that she didn't see who it was. The investigation was assigned to Detective William Blanchard of the Youngstown Police Department. On December 26, 1985, Detective Blanchard met Gina at her apartment. She told the detective that the outside door to her building made a loud screeching noise when it was opened or closed. 
but she did not hear the door screech, which made her think that the person who entered her apartment had not come from the outside. Detective Blanchard spoke with the couple who lived below, Benny Adams and his girlfriend, Adina Fidelia, but neither of them had heard anything that night. Okay, Kath, when I heard the girlfriend's name, it made me think of Amelia Bedelia. Adina Fidelia, Amelia Bedelia. It made me think of children's book. Ophelia. You've been on my mind, girl, since the flood. Anyway. Kathy hasn't sang in a podcast in quite a while. So... You're like, so please stop. (laughs) No. But I do love the Lumineers. Anyway, so looking at her apartment door, Detective Blanchard saw slight but noticeable evidence of a forced entry. He followed up on the responding officer's report of footprints and went to the address where they had stopped. He interviewed the resident who lived there, whose name was Ed Tregesser. Tregesser claimed to know nothing about the break-in. After the interview, Detective Blanchard noted that he did not rule out Ed Tregesser as the burglar, but there was no evidence at that point to charge him with a crime. Less than a week after the break-in, so this is just five days after Christmas, a muskrat trapper who was analyzing his traps discovered Gina Tenney's frozen body in the Mahoning River a few miles from her home. There were ligature marks on her neck and wrists. Upon identifying Gina's body, homicide detectives brought Detective Blanchard into the investigation. Detective Blanchard and two homicide detectives went to Gina's apartment to look for evidence and talk to her neighbors. The exterior door to the building was locked, so the detectives had to bang on the door for several minutes until Benny Adams came out of his apartment and admitted them into the building's common area. Remember, this is the downstairs neighbor who police had talked to before. As the detectives walked up the stairs to Gina's apartment, they did not see any blood on the steps and found the door to her apartment locked. Detective Blanchard did not see any new evidence of forced entry into her apartment. The investigators decided to call the building's owner so they could look inside Gina's apartment, so they went back downstairs and knocked on Benny Adams' door. Adams let them into his apartment and allowed them to use his phone. While one of the homicide detectives called the landlord, Detective Blanchard and Homicide Detective Lieutenant David Campana talked to Adams about his upstairs neighbor. As a customary safety precaution, detectives asked Adams if he was alone in the apartment. He said yes, so they then began asking him questions about Gina. When had he last seen her? Had anything suspicious been happening in or around the building lately? Was there anybody else around who might know something about what was going on? And if there was somebody else in the building, they should speak to who might know something. Adams told detectives he did not know where Gina might be and did not know anybody else they should talk to. A few minutes later, the detectives heard a loud bump, a sound like a door hitting a wall. Detective Blanchard and Lieutenant Campana went into the back bedroom of Adams' apartment where they found a man hiding behind the door who they knew did not live in that apartment complex. The lieutenant recognized the man as Horace Landers, and Landers was someone the Youngstown PD had dealings with before. Lieutenant Campana remembered that this man had an outstanding misdemeanor warrant, so he immediately arrested and handcuffed him. Now, Kath, Landers was wearing pants, but not a shirt, and there was no explanation as to why. I invite your imagination. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, knowing that they would have to bring Landers outside in the cold, Detective Blanchard looked around and saw a shirt lying on the bed, so he draped it over his shoulders. But then he thought, wait a second, this isn't going to be warm enough. And he picked up a jacket that was on the floor, intending to put it on Landers to keep him warm for transport. 
So Landers told Detective Blanchard that the jacket belonged to Benny Adams, but the detective didn't care and picked it up anyway. Just to be safe, he searched it for weapons before putting it on Landers. And when he did, he felt a hard object in the jacket pocket. And when he put his hand in, he actually pulled two objects out of the jacket pocket. One was a Mahoning County welfare card in the name of Benny Adams, and the other was an ATM card from Dollar Bank in the name of Gina Tenney. At this point, Benny Adams was also immediately arrested. Adina Fidelia, who also went by Amelia Bedelia, or Ophelia, <laughs> Benny Adams' girlfriend, whose name was on the lease, consented to a search of the apartment she shared with Adams. In a bathroom trash can, police officers found a ring of 10 keys with the letter G on the keychain. One of the keys fit the door to Gina's apartment, and another key fit her car. In the kitchen trash can, Detective Blanchard found a potholder with hair and dirt on it. Police officers found a matching potholder on top of the refrigerator in Gina's apartment. Police officers also found an unplugged television on a bed in Adams' apartment. The serial number on the television matched the number on an empty television box discovered in Gina's apartment. A wall unit in her apartment had an empty space for a television, and a cable television cord was hanging in the space. In Gina's apartment, Detective Blanchard did not see any broken glass, broken furniture, or other indication that her apartment had been ransacked. A plate of food and a beer bottle were on the kitchen table. According to Gina's friend, Penny Sergeff, after the Christmas break-in, Gina's emotional state had changed. For the next few nights, she always had one of her friends spend the night with her because she was afraid to be alone in her apartment. I totally get this. Oh, I do too. I grew up in a family after my dad died that my mom was fearful at night mm-hmm. because she's now a widow in a house by herself. She has no husband. Mm-hmm. And it's funny because with two kids, we both took different directions. My sister refuses to let fear make her feel unsafe in her own house. That's true. You're like that. I am like that. Although I have to say, since we started doing this podcast, I lock my door a lot more. (laughs) (laughs) It's true. Yeah. When I was reading all of the information for this case, what drew me in was the feeling that Gina Tenney had Mm -hmm. about the safety of her apartment. Right. And of course, you know, Kathy and I had kind of Monday morning quarterbacked it for a little bit, but you can't. Right. You can't say uh -uh. this is what I would do. This is what I wouldn't do. No. However, last year I talked about having an issue with a neighbor and how it really freaked me out and I felt unsafe. Yeah. I am not too proud to admit that when I went to bed at night, I had blocked my bedroom door. Oh, yeah. And my sister and Kathy would not do that. So Penny hung out with Gina at her apartment on the evening of December 28th. This is just three days after the break in. She said they watched TV for a while, but then Gina's ex-boyfriend, Mark Passarello, came over. When he got there, Penny asked him to drive her home. After he dropped her off, he returned to Gina's apartment. Mark told detectives that she was afraid to be by herself, so he spent the night, and then later admitted that even though they had broken up, they did have sex that night. They hung out the next day until just after lunch, and he left and went home to his apartment. Gina left at the same time to meet up with a friend, Jeff Thomas, for an early afternoon movie. After the movie, Gina and Jeff had dinner. Jeff told detectives that they talked about work and school, but Gina kept bringing the conversation back to a situation that was going on in her apartment. Gina told Jeff that she was very concerned about the man downstairs. 
with Jeff describing Gina's mental state as apprehensive and borderline fearful. Jeff and Gina went separate ways around 4.30 or 5 o'clock that evening. As part of the homicide investigation, detectives obtained Gina Tanney's bank account records from Dollar Bank. Her account records for December 29, 1985, the day before she was found dead, showed six attempted transactions on her ATM card between 9.24 and 9.34 p.m. Three of them were attempts to withdraw cash, which was all denied for insufficient funds, and there were two phony attempts to deposit money using empty deposit envelopes, and there was also one unsuccessful attempt to transfer funds between accounts. Kath, when you were in college, did you ever have insufficient funds? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I totally... But never did I try empty deposit envelopes. No, I heard that trick when I was in college, but I, I never did it. No. I mean, because that's bank fraud, but... Exactly. You know, it really wasn't worth the jail time you may have gotten. Totally. <laughs> but I always had insufficient funds and I always bounced checks. And now that I think about it, I probably never told you this story. <laughs> When I was in college, of course, I hung out with all the kids that had no cars. Right. I had one friend who had a car, Chris. And so whenever he went off campus, he would always say like, hey, do you want to come with me? I'm going here, blah, blah, blah. No matter where it was, I said yes. Of course. So one night he's like, hey, I'm going to Safeway. Do you want to go to Safeway with me? And I was like, oh, cool. So we go to Safeway and I'm sure I bought my usual junk food. I yeah. would buy those like frozen pizza rolls, which I look back and I like what made <laughs> me like those. But anyway, I loved them. And I would also, this is so disgusting, I would buy jars of marshmallow cream. Oh, <laughs> I know. And just like eat it out of the jar? Eat it with a spoon. Oh my God. I know. It's so gross when I think about it. But at the same time, I'm slightly tempted by it still. <laughs> at least you're not <laughs> dipping the Tostino pizza rolls into the marshmallow Exactly. <laughs> that would be a crime against humanity. Yeah, totally. Like since college, I haven't had it. But when I see it in the grocery store, I'm like, oh, memories. <laughs> anyway. So I write a check to Safeway and we are almost to Chris's car in the parking lot. Some freaking box boy runs after me and takes my groceries. <gasps> are you kidding? Yeah. So they must have never told me this. I must have been like on a bounce check registry or something. I have no idea. You had to have been. They I had no, way no idea it. how they ran it through. But yeah, so there I am giving back all my groceries. <laughs> In the parking lot of Safeway. I probably had like two bags, I'm guessing. Anyway, my friend Chris could not stop laughing. Oh my God, of course not. And we, of course we get back to campus and he could not stop telling everyone. And I'm like, can you please? Enough already. And if that happens today, they just let you walk on out. You can take a television you know set. What? Today I could probably walk into that same Safeway, take whatever I wanted and walk back out. Yep. All the filet mignon, exactly. ribeyes, whatever you want. You're Actually, good to... you know, like knowing my luck, there would be like a vigilant security guard. It would be the one time he like tackled the customer. Or an off-duty police officer. <laughs> who was just tired of all these robberies. Exactly. <laughs> oh. All right. So detectives noticed these attempts with Gina's ATM card, but there's no camera at the bank. So police officers questioned other bank customers whose ATM cards were used at around the same time that Gina's was being used. Okay. So police speak with John and Sandra Alley, whose ATM card was used immediately after Gina's. And Mr. Ali told police officers that he and his wife both remembered seeing the man at the ATM vestibule on the night in question. So, Kath, they were sitting in their car waiting for it to be their turn. I'm assuming it was freezing. Oh, yeah. So what they tell the police is that they saw this man who was black wearing a hoodie and had a scarf covering most of his face. And the reason they remember him is because it didn't seem like he knew how to use the ATM. 
So Mr. Ali said when the man came out of the vestibule, he stood in front of the Ali's car and waved at them. Now, Mr. Ali said he didn't know the man's name, but recognized him as someone he had seen around the neighborhood. When the man started his car, Mr. Ali told investigators that the car was a Buick and it made an unusual noise. And that wasn't put in any detail anywhere. Yeah, exactly. God only knows what that means. So eight days after Gina's body was found, John and Sandra Alley were brought to the station to view an in-person lineup. There were six men in the lineup, including Benny Adams and Horace Landers. His half-naked friend? That's exactly right. (laughs) The shirtless wonder. (laughs) So Mr. Ali would not tell officers whether or not he could identify any of the individuals. And Mrs. Ali identified Landers as the man she saw at the ATM, which police found very interesting because he was very light skinned. Now, that's according to court records. I do not know if he was Caucasian or a light skinned black man, but police were not expecting him to be chosen. But Mr. Ali was taken to the police garage and he actually picked out the car he saw that night at the ATM. And he saw it and he heard the sound of it and he said, Yep, that's the one. This car was registered to Gina Tenney. The day Benny Adams was arrested for being in possession of Gina Tenney's ATM card, his former parole officer, William Sikorsi, spoke to him in jail. Adams denied committing any crime and denied having any knowledge that a crime had actually been committed. Three days later, Sikorsi asked Adams specifically about the ATM card. According to Sikorsi, Adams admitted that the jacket in which the card was found belonged to him. He said that he found the ATM card outside his building on the front step at around 11.30 a.m. on December 30, 1985, the day Gina's body was found. Adams told Sikorsi that he rang Gina's doorbell to return the card, but she was not home. So he put the card in his jacket pocket, intending to return it at some later time. Adams was charged with one count of receiving stolen property. And Kath, this was one day after the card had been used at the ATM. Exactly. Gina Tenney's autopsy was performed under the supervision of Mahoning County Coroner Dr. Nathan D. Belinke. The coroner's report stated there were ligature-type contusions on Gina's neck and around both wrists. There were additional contusions and abrasions on her abdomen and chest, both breasts, and around her nose, lips, and chin. There was also blood coming from her right nostril. The coroner also checked for signs of recent sexual activity. Dr. Belinke concluded that the cause of death was traumatic asphyxiation, and he ruled the death a homicide. The listed time of death was 11.15 p.m. on December 29, 1985. Bonjour, parlez-vous français? Me neither, (laughs) despite the fact that I paid for it in college, which is why I need Rosetta Stone, and so do you. As you all know, I've used Rosetta Stone in the past for my German, and it's wonderful. And in fact, my niece is going to be studying abroad this fall, and she's going to be using Rosetta Stone so that she can learn the language and have a much more enriching experience while she's abroad. Rosetta Stone has been the trusted expert for 30 years with millions of users and 25 languages offered. And they have speech recognition, which gives you feedback on your pronunciation. They also have two different options available to use it. It's available both on your desktop and through an app. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. 
For a very limited time, Killer Destinations listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today today. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. When Betty Adams was arrested for being in possession of Gina Tenney's bank card, police officers obtained samples of his pubic hair, saliva, and blood. Samples were also obtained from Horace Landers and Gina's ex-boyfriend, Mark Passarello. The coroner did find semen on a vaginal swab taken from Gina, so the samples from the three men were compared with the genetic material on the swab. In February of 1986, so this is just two months after Gina's death, Ohio Bureau of Criminal Investigation tested the vaginal swab as well as semen found on Gina's underwear. Now, mind you, this is 1986, and genetic testing was absolutely in its infancy. So when they got the results, the semen on the swab came from a type B non-secretor. Gina's ex-boyfriend, Passarello, was a type A secretor, and Landers was a type B secretor. As a result, these two were eliminated as the source of the semen. Benny Adams, however, was a type B non-secretor. And it was noted at the time, Kath, only 4% of black men were type B non-secretors. So, although the blood evidence in 1986 did not definitively prove that Adams was the source of the semen, it placed him within the population of possible sources. So now the potholder found in Adam's apartment was also analyzed. It was found to contain hair from a black person as well as a Caucasian redhead and pubic hair. Gina Tenney was a Caucasian redhead. The redhead hair and pubic hair were consistent with Gina's. The sample of the black hair consisted of small fragments and was not sufficient for comparison purposes. Police found fingerprints of evidentiary value only on the television set that was in Adams' apartment. Investigators were able to lift nine prints from the TV. Four matched Adams. The other five could not be matched to Gina, Benny Adams, or Horace Landers. The charge against Benny Adams for receiving stolen property was presented to a grand jury on February 21, 1986, two months after Gina Tenney was found dead in the Mahoning River. However, the grand jury declined to indict Adams on the stolen property charge, which makes him a rare person. Oh, totally. Because, as we've said before, the adage is you can indict a ham sandwich. And receipt of stolen property, you don't have to prove intent. That's crazy. I know. So as a result, the prosecution was leery of presenting a murder charge to the grand jury at that time if they wouldn't indict for stolen property. So, despite the strong suspicions that Adams could have been involved in Gina's murder, the investigation went cold within a year of finding her body. 
police officers were able to keep Adams in custody because he was a suspect in the kidnapping, rape, and robbery of a school principal that occurred in nearby Boardman, Ohio. This is about five miles away from Youngstown. Nine months later, Adams was convicted in Mahoning County Common Pleas Court of kidnapping, rape, and aggravated robbery. He served almost 18 years in prison and was released on parole in April of 2004, at which point he had to register as a sex offender. In 1989, so four years after Gina Tenney's murder, and while Benny Adams was still in prison for attacking the school principal, DNA testing became more widely available. So detectives sent samples from the Gina Tenney murder case to the FBI for testing. The results showed that the semen was consistent with Benny Adams, but was also consistent with 8% of the Caucasian population and 12% of the Black population. So the prosecution did not feel that these new results helped their case. In 2007, the Ohio Attorney General encouraged police departments to submit cold case evidence to the Ohio Bureau of Criminal Investigation Laboratory for DNA testing. The Youngstown Police Department submitted evidence from the Gina Tenney case, which was now 22 years old. The police department submitted Gina's underwear and the vaginal swab for DNA testing and submitted fresh DNA samples from Gina's ex-boyfriend, Mark Passarello, and Benny Adams. Now, Kath, at this point, Adams was on parole, so I am assuming he was subject to search and seizure and was forced to give a sample. Since Horace Landers was deceased at this point, the department forwarded a sample from 1986 of his that was still on file. DNA analysis excluded Landers as the source of the DNA on the swab as well as the underwear. Passarello's DNA was found on Tenney's underwear, but his DNA was not found on the sample taken from the vaginal swab. I know this isn't a laughing matter, Kathy, but what this reminds me of is our first episode when your brother complained to you that we used the word vaginal far too many times. So sorry, Frank. (laughs) Totally. And I remember he also talked about how bloody the episode was like, and he bludgeoned her and he bludgeoned her. But anyway. (laughs) And clearly we didn't listen. Right, exactly. Anyway, DNA testing could not exclude Benny Adams as the source of the DNA on the vaginal swab or the underwear. It was reported back to detectives that the odds that the DNA on the swab came from someone other than Adams were one in more than 38 trillion. The odds that the DNA on the underwear came from someone other than Adams were one in 64 quintillion. In today's dollars, that would be (laughs) almost three and a half years after he was released on parole for rape and related convictions, police officers arrested Benny Adams and charged him with aggravated murder in connection with Gina Tenney's 1985 death. On October 11, 2007, a grand jury returned a five count indictment for aggravated murder, rape, aggravated battery, aggravated robbery and kidnapping. One week later, that indictment was superseded by an indictment that included a death specification, which alleged that Adams committed Gina's murder while committing or attempting to commit an underlying felony. Ten months later, in July of 2008, the trial court dismissed all of the underlying felonies on the grounds that they exceeded the statute of limitations, but the case proceeded to trial on the charge of aggravated murder. 
which required that if the prosecution wanted to go with aggravated murder and a death penalty, they still had to prove the underlying felonies, even though they didn't get to charge him separately for them. The state called 18 witnesses to testify at trial. The defense presented no witnesses of its own, but rather cross-examined all of the prosecution witnesses. They also recalled and briefly questioned one of the state's witnesses. But we'll get into that in just a moment. Among the prosecution witnesses were John and Sandra Alley. This is the couple who said they saw the man at the ATM trying to use Gina Tenney's ATM card, but failed to identify him in an in-person lineup. On the stand, John Alley testified that he had not identified anyone in the lineup because there were too many police personnel in the room with them, and he did not know if any of them were untrustworthy. He was fearful for his wife's safety and was concerned someone in that room would tell the suspect that the Alleys identified him. He also testified that he told his wife not to say anything to anyone in the room. Mr. Ali told the jury that just a few days after the lineup, he telephoned Detective Blanchard and said that the man from the ATM was the third person from the left, which was the place where Benny Adams had stood in the lineup. Mr. Ali testified that he returned to the police station the day after he talked with Detective Blanchard, viewed a photo array of three pictures, and made a correct identification of Adams. John's wife, Sandra Alley, testified at trial that she purposely made a false identification at the lineup. Originally, she identified Horace Landers. On the way to the in-person lineup at the station that day, John had expressed concern about putting her in harm's way. When they arrived, they were taken to an office with other people present, and John then told her that he did not like the surroundings. Mrs. Ali said that John gave her a secret signal that meant she should not identify the person she saw. So when Mrs. Ali was asked if she could identify the person who was in the ATM, she was terrified. So she pointed to Horace Lander, who was the extreme opposite of the person she actually saw. So rather than a tall black man, she pointed to a short, light-skinned man. Like her husband, Mrs. Ali testified that she spoke to police officers sometime after the lineup to identify the actual person, but said that the police officers did not call her back to view a second lineup. At trial, Mrs. Alley viewed a photograph of the original six-man lineup and testified that person number three, who was Benny Adams, was the man at the ATM. However, the defense pointed out that the Alleys had lied originally to the police and were therefore untrustworthy and lacked credibility. It's very easy to impeach a witness when somebody lies. Isn't it true? You lied and this and that and blah, blah, blah. And what makes you think that we could believe you now? And it's been all these years later. And anyway, so the defense tried to cheer up and spit her out. Two of Gina Tenney's friends also testified at trial. Penny Sergiff and Marvin Robinson testified that when they visited Gina, she specifically told them she was afraid of her downstairs neighbor, Benny Adams. This was something that was not included in their statements to investigators immediately after her death. And of course, the defense exploited this fact, implying that they were exaggerating for purposes of trial. So Gina's friends also testified that Adams had been bothering Gina for some time before her death and that Gina told them Adams often stood in his doorway watching her or peeking out through his curtains. According to Gina's friends, Adams started calling Gina late at night, asking her to invite him up to her apartment. The calls continued even after Gina asked him to stop, and Cassie eventually changed her phone number. 
I was surprised when I read that. Yeah. That's like a very extreme thing. One hundred percent, like very extreme thing to have to do. So Gina's friend Marvin also described the incident in which someone slipped a card in an envelope under Gina's door addressed to a very sweet and confused young lady. And it was signed, Love Benny. Okay, that is so, so, so over the top. Exactly. Like, because I don't love you back, I'm confused. Yeah. Or maybe I just have good judgment. Who knows? Anyway, police officers found the envelope in Gina's apartment, but did not find the card. Gina's mother, Avalon Tenney, also took the stand. She testified that her daughter had called her the day before she was murdered and told her that she was afraid of Benny Adams. The defense recalled Youngstown Police Detective Blanchard. The defense elicited the testimony that Detective Blanchard did not see any broken glass in Tenney's apartment, nor did he see any broken furniture or any evidence that the home had been ransacked. He said he saw a plate of food and a beer bottle that were on the kitchen table, and he testified that he had a vague recollection that there was some disarray but he could not recall what he observed and was not able to actually state any facts about such disarray. His contemporaneous investigative notes did not mention any overturned furniture. The defense basically argues with this testimony, hey, wait a second, the prosecution cannot prove the essential elements of aggravated burglary. If he was even there, all he's doing is communicating a simple trespass. Aggravated burglary required that the prosecution prove Benny Adams trespassed into Gina's apartment by force, stealth, or deception. And Detective Blanchard testified that after Gina's body was found, he saw no fresh signs of forcible entry into her apartment. These facts become important later. On October 22, 2008, after deliberating for eight hours over two days, the jury of eight women and four men returned a verdict. Guilty on the aggravated murder charge and on the death specification. One week later, the jury returned a recommendation of death. Two weeks after that, Judge Timothy Franken adopted the jury's recommendation and sentenced Benny Adams to death. So after his conviction, Benny Adams filed a 528-page appeal Kath, I'm guessing that's a big one. That's a big dog. With 21 assignments of error. In October of 2011, so this is three years after his conviction, the 7th District Court of Appeals affirmed the conviction and the death penalty for Adams, stating that all claims that were being made by Adams' defense team lacked merit. Adams then appealed to the Ohio Supreme Court. Four years later, in October of 2015, the Ohio Supreme Court made its ruling. The court noted that the state charged Adams with aggravated murder and alleged that Adams was eligible for the death penalty because he murdered his victim while committing one or more underlying felonies. These were rape, kidnapping, aggravated robbery, or aggravated burglary. In its review, the Ohio Supreme Court determined that the state showed sufficient evidence that Benny Adams committed the underlying felonies of rape, kidnapping, and aggravated robbery. However, the state did not prove aggravated burglary. The state never committed to a single theory of which of the four felonies was committed during the commission of the murder. 
So, Kathy, in reading the majority opinion, the Ohio Supreme Court Chief Justice Maureen O'Connor explained that when this was taken to trial, the prosecutors alleged that those four underlying felonies occurred during the commission of Gina Tenney's murder. However, they did not specify one single felony that they believe occurred. As a result, the state was on the hook for proving that all four felonies occurred. Boom. And the jury never stated in its decision which of the four felonies it was using to reach the decision to apply the death sentence. Chief Justice O'Connor further said that because the prosecution failed to prove all four felonies, remember in Detective Blanchard's testimony, he failed to prove aggravated burglary versus simple trespass, the prosecution did not meet its burden of proof on these four underlying felonies. So therefore, the death penalty could not apply to Benny Adams. Oh my God, you sound like a lawyer. Your mother would be so (laughs) proud of you right now. (laughs) So as a result, in a 5-2 decision, the Ohio Supreme Court ruled that Benny Adams' death sentence was invalid. The Supreme Court did, however, uphold the murder conviction, and they sent the case back to the trial judge for a new sentencing hearing, which essentially eliminated the death penalty. Chief Justice O'Connor noted in the ruling that due to the U.S. Constitution's Fifth Amendment, which prohibits double jeopardy, the prosecution was barred from seeking the death penalty at the new sentencing hearing. In June of 2016, Mahoning County Common Pleas Court Judge Lou Diapolito sentenced Adams to 20 years to life in prison. In 2021, 13 years after being sentenced for Gina Tenney's murder, Benny Adams applied for parole. At this point, he had been in prison for almost 32 years when we are including the 18 years for the unrelated 1985 rape. Prosecutors objected to granting Adams parole and sent a letter to the parole board stating that there did not exist reasonable grounds to believe that Adams parole was in the interest of justice, nor was it consistent with the welfare and security of society. They described Adams' actions as a terrifying pattern of criminal behavior and that his continued incarceration was justified. In September of 21, the Ohio Parole Board denied his release and he remained at the Trumbull Correctional Institution in Levittsburg, Ohio. The prosecutor confirmed to the public that Adams would not be eligible for parole again until 2028. On April 4th, 2023, so just over a month ago, Benny Adams was granted a new hearing on whether the jurors in his trial were biased because at least some of them found out about his prior rape conviction, even though this information was not admitted as evidence during the course of the trial. Adams submitted an affidavit from juror Terrence Maloney to support his claim that jurors learned of his rape, kidnapping, and robbery conviction. In that affidavit, Maloney said that shortly after the jury recommended the death penalty, another juror approached Maloney and said, if it makes you feel any better, Benny Adams was in prison for rape for 17 years. After the jurors delivered the verdict, most of them went to dinner together. Maloney said that at that dinner, a second juror approached him and said that she had been dying to tell him that Benny Adams had been in prison for rape for years. In this federal appeal, the judge wrote that the Ohio Appellate Court denied this issue during Adams' appeal by reasoning that the jurors might not have discovered Adams' conviction until 
after the jury rendered its guilt phase verdict. So, Kathy, what happened is that in one of Benny Adams' appeals, he did bring up juror bias as a potential error. The Ohio Appellate Court denied this issue in the appeal, and it said, you haven't given us enough evidence and that the jurors might not have discovered this conviction until after the jury rendered the verdict. So we deny it. This claim has no merit. But the federal judge now comes back and says, due process requires that you hold a hearing for the defendant on this issue. It's not enough for you as a court to just say, nope, this has no merit. Right. Next. You don't get to be the judge. Right. Exactly. The defendant gets to have an opportunity to provide evidence to prove juror bias. So because of this, the federal judge has now ruled that the Ohio court has 150 days to hold an evidentiary hearing on this allegation of juror bias. See, you sound like such a lawyer. You know, my studies are coming along well. You know who I'm studying with? Who? Kim Kardashian. (laughs) I knew you were going to say that. Well, she's doing a marvelous job. (laughs) So Benny Adams, now 65 years old, is set for a hearing in mid-June 2023 before a judge in the Mahoning County Common Pleas Court. During Adams' trial in October 2008... Gina's parents, Lucian and Avalon Tenney, told the Star Beacon newspaper they believed all along that Adams had killed their daughter. For 23 years, they suffered, believing that their daughter's killer would never be brought to justice. Despite being in their 80s at the time, the couple attended every day of trial. In a 2008 interview, Mr. Tenney said he had to identify his daughter's body. I'll never forget that day. We had to sit there in the coroner's office until midnight. She'd been out of that cold water since early morning, but they had to warm her up. Mr. Tenney said, with tears in his eyes, when we saw her, she was pretty as a picture, just like she was asleep. Mr. Tenney died in 2013, and Mrs. Tenney died in 2015. Shortly after Gina Tenney's murder in January of 1986, the members of Youngstown State University Student Government Association established the Gina Tenney Memorial Scholarship. According to the university's page for the scholarship, Gina was one of the university's best and most dedicated students. Before her tragic death, she had been actively involved in campus life and had achieved an excellent academic standing. She was a member of the Student Government Association, serving as vice president of student council, and was a student assistant in the Students Serving Students program. In addition, she served as a costumer and assistant director during the University Theater's 1985 season. To honor her memory, the Gina Tenney Memorial Scholarship Fund provides $1,200 to a sophomore student majoring in the fine arts or the humanities. It has been awarded for the last 37 years since it was established. Thanks for listening. And the latest is that we will be launching a Patreon account in the near future. We hope you're excited as we are. Because we really need to not have this be a hobby. (laughs) (laughs) Because we want to bring you more quality content. That's what what I meant to say. So look for a poll coming soon on our Instagram account at Killer Destinations Podcast for what kind of content you would want to see on our Patreon account. I think that's a great idea. Thank you. Mm -hmm. You're you're (laughs) full of them, but I do. Full of something. (laughs) 
but we are curious. We've gone over this a lot of times in conversation, and we would love to hear from you as to what you would like from Patreon. I know what I want. I want it to be really easy. (laughs) Uh, Ditto. Please follow us if you don't. And when you see the poll, please participate so that we can get your input. (laughs) 